0: You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. Deepening Your Practice is recorded at the Against the Dream Buddhist Meditation Society in Los Angeles, California. For more information, visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org.
1: So, welcome everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice Deepening your practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class. And what that really means is that I'm not going to include basic meditation instruction. I expect you already to know that. That being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm just not going to include basic meditation instruction. Tonight's topic is uh, purification of conduct with meditation. And I thought that I would talk about remote and immediate conditions for concentration and uh, knowledges. So morality as remote and immediate conditions for concentration and knowledges. Lay persons can use insight meditation to fully purify the four kinds of morality regardless of whether or not they have practiced morality for a long time beforehand. We may wonder, however, what kind of morality they must develop as a basis for their concentration and insight knowledge, given that the Buddha has said on many occasions, a man established on morality wise develops the mind and wisdom. The answer is that all meditators should develop concentration and insight knowledge based on two kinds of morality. Morality that has been purified before meditation and morality that is purified during meditation. Morality that has already been observed for some time before taking up meditation practices serve as a remote condition or prior cause for the arising of insight concentration and insight wisdom as well as for path concentration and path wisdom. The morality that accompanied prior insight knowledges and path knowledge and fruition knowledge also serve as the remote condition for later insight concentration and insight wisdom as well as for path concentration and path wisdom. The pure morality that accompanies each and every moment of insight knowledge and path knowledge is the immediate condition or present cause for the concentration and wisdom involved in that very moment of consciousness. If a person has purified his or her morality before taking up meditation, then his or her concentration and wisdom are based on both remote and immediate moral conditions. If, on the other hand, a person purifies his or her morality only through insight meditation, then his or her initial concentration and wisdom are based only on the immediate moral condition, while his or her succeeding insight concentration and insight wisdom, as well as path, concentration and path wisdom are based on both remote and immediate moral conditions. Clear? Uh-huh. <laughs> check. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this is one of these things where he in this book a lot He sort of a s read the whole thing and go back and start at the beginning. Right. more sense because he assumes a lot he sort of knows that he does a lot of defining Right. So here he's talking about um, he talks about the rise of insight concentration and insight wisdom, as well as path concentration and path wisdom. And then he goes on to talk about insight knowledge and path knowledge and fruition knowledge. So there's seven, I think, total there. Right. Could you give us about
1: 30
2: seconds
1: on that? <laughs> yeah, sure. Mark, <laughs> you know, take a minute if you want. I'll just share
2: your direct experience of each one. Yeah. yeah that's, so.
1: Um, path, wisdom, path, knowledge. Um, so it's based on the four path model of uh, uh, enlightenment. The four path model of enlightenment is based on the eradication of the ten fetters. So, um, the wisdom to know what path you're on. Path knowledge is the actual experience of that arising. Then we're looking at the 16 stages, or the progress of insight as he describes it, and knowing where you are on on that particular map of of the progress of insight. Uh, Fruition knowledge and path knowledge are different. Fruition knowledge would be the knowledge that you know that you've had the experience of cessation, the wisdom that arises from knowing that you've had uh, cessation, typically would be the, the, these insights or these eradications of the fetters. Path knowledge, you can have fruition, uh, know that you've had fruition, know the wisdom that comes from fruition and, and still not uh, take another path. So that's the, why those two are split. Um, the ten fetters are eradicated depending on which path you take if you take the first path which is called stream enter you're eradicating the first three fetters, the first three fetters are the belief in a uh, continuous ongoing self that's intrinsic the uh, belief that religious ceremony is the same thing as enlightenment or will lead to enlightenment itself and the third is the eradication of the hindrance of doubt. Doubt in this sense is narrowly confined to uh, doubt that the path leads to enlightenment. Lots of other doubts remain. That's So it isn't a blanket eradication of doubt. It's eradication that the, the practice of meditation, the practice of moral purity leads to Enlightenment. If you've had the fruition experience, then you've you've had stream entry, and so that you have the basis of enlightenment, and so that you know that in the practice leads to enlightenment through your direct experience. Uh, if you remember earlier we were talking about these aspects of morality, one of the aspects of morality is a belief in uh, reincarnation, so that in the first path the stream enter a path it's said that you were then reincarnated only seven more times so if you remember um, some of these obstacles to to liberation in this lifetime would be not believing in reincarnation and not believing in the moral aspect of karma yet it's very ordinary in our culture which has in some sense opened itself to um, um, secular Buddhism or an atheistic uh, way of relating to Buddhism that these aren't requirements for practice so they're not requirements for moral purification in the West although in, in Asia that it, if you didn't accept these basic things they would be thought to be moral obstacles to being enlightened in this lifetime is that making sense? Um, <clears throat> so second path is a weakening of the next two fetters, so that would be the fetter of craving and the fetter of aversion. So you'd go through the 16 stages, you'd you'd have a, a big experience of cessation, that would be fruition knowledge, the wisdom that comes from that in terms of eradicating the, these fetters would come from that. Whether you had path knowledge or not, you would know. And it's thought that if you have Uh, attainment to second path that you're reincarnated only one more time Um, third path is uh, so first path is stream enter second path is once returner third path is non-returner because it's thought that you're not reincarnated after attaining to third path and third path is the eradication of craving and aversion so those two fetters go so in the first three paths of enlightenment you eradicate half of the fetters on the list. Um, in Buddhism, the way that suffering ends is that you're no longer reincarnated. That if you're reincarnated as a human, that the human existence comes with dukkha, comes with that suffering. And so when we talk about eliminating suffering in Buddhism, we're not talking about uh, alleviating the distress of being human that only happens when you die uh, in order to get off the wheel of, of suffering you have to get off the wheel of the rebirth so you're not reborn anymore and that is the ultimate relief from suffering but as long as you're reborn into the human form it comes inherently with dukkha I
0: have, I have a quick question <clears throat> this same path, and um, that implies to me that there's okay, there, it's one or the other. But if you uh, become a, a stream enterer, and you have uh, let's say you do have all seven uh, reincarnations, on your sixth one, are you are you not the next? Uh, are you not a once returner then? Yeah. If you're only going to be a reincarnated one time. I, I mean, isn't it like? And then once you're done with that, aren't you an Arhont? And I mean, or or is it? Do you understand my question? I don't know what what the word path means. It seems to me that these things go one right into the other, from stream enterer to once returner to arhat. But but
1: but, you make, but the word path implies a choice. Um, I'm I'm thinking that mostly what what we're caught up in is the. the the poor nature of English as a translation. Probably, yeah.
0: It's the word path that's just
1: throwing me. Um, But in some sense, the journey between not enlightened and enlightened is much shorter than the journey from enlightenment to, from stream enter to arahachim. Maybe that's a way to think so you continue on that path from stream entry, then there's the path up to once-returner then the path, from once-returner to non-returner, from non-returner to ara. Do you have a sense of what enlightenment is, <laughs> enough that you could recognize it in someone or not recognize it in someone? Um,
0: I don't think it's someone else. I think it'd be hard to recognize it in yourself. I would hope you would know, but no, I don't. I mean, unless I don't know if you came upon the Buddha, I suppose, and he's slightly glowing or something. That might be a clue, but no, I wouldn't think you would know.
1: What is that saying? If you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him.
2: Yeah. (laughs)
1: You (laughs) can see (laughs) it.
0: I think if one has that awareness, one will recognize
3: it in mm-hmm. If one didn't,
1: right.
2: There is enough understanding to, on, yeah. to, to.
1: So, do you notice um, in people, in in our culture, which is so secular, a, a devoted belief in religious ceremony uh, leading to heaven? Mm-hmm. You know, people who believe have that belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may recall that one of the things that prevents you from becoming enlightenment is a belief in god okay. do you know people who believe in god do you know people who don't believe in god do you know who be- people who believe uh, in the observ- uh, observance of religious ceremony and that they think that the that religious ceremony will get them somewhere so
4: I think most people but you also, right? Uh huh. I was wondering because uh, I went to the, Get- the Getty
0: Center has an art exhibit right now, and, like Buddhist caves in China and stuff. And then, I'm not a scholar on it, but it was saying that a lot of it was started because people were donating their money. They like paid for it with the goals of they creating positive karma for them. Like that was the creation of it. How does that like relate to it being a religious ritual
1: towards like bettering yourself? It seems kind of similar, doesn't right? It? it does, doesn't it? Um, merit, the gaining of merit, so that your next rebirth is is more advantageous to you. Um, it, it's um, my understanding is that that tends to be more of a uh, Mahayana tradition. So the the greater vehicle so Zen this is an evolution beyond Hinayana which is much more centered around uh, liberation for yourself the Mahayana vow is uh, the Bodhisattva vow which is that you deny um, uh, enlightenment to the level that would prevent your reincarnation taking the vow that you'll continue to be reincarnated until all beings are Liberate it, um, but then you're constantly um, m- wanting to uh, develop merit so that the next time you're born you're born in a better incarnation so that you don't suffer as much as a, as a human um, when I was in Burma I, I hired a guide uh, to take me around because the alphabet is impenetrable and the, the language is impenetrable to my ear and eye and um, we were sitting at lunch one day and he said I really don't get this creator God thing and I said oh what about it and he said well they, people say that it's an omnipotent God that he can do whatever he wants why would you make the world this way if you could do whatever you wanted why would there be so much injustice, so much suffering why couldn't you make it if you were all powerful into something that was actually wholesome. And he said that he really prefers the Buddhist view that your your situation is based on your merit. So that this that your current life is a reflection of your past life. Um, which had, to me, in some sense the same feel of, of belief and dogma as the, the opposition to the the, the Judeo Christian Islam formation.
4: Yeah, but the Christian um, explanation for something like that, yeah, God is all powerful. And I'm just saying what I've been told and experienced, God is all powerful, but man has self will and man creates the suffering right. and the injustice, not God. That's their rationalization. Right. You know, so that that's a similar You know, just another side of the Buddhist or that gentleman giving his point of view about what the Buddhist answer is about past life. What I want to know is, you made the statement that you don't get reincarnated. I understand that you don't get reincarnated.
1: So you're not reborn.
4: You're not reborn
1: if you don't. It has something to do with
4: the feathers. Enlightenment. If you're not enlightened... No, you if you are
1: enlightened, you. enlightened and you've eradicated the first five fetters, you're not reincarnated.
4: So you only get reincarnated re- if you didn't do the job the first time. Correct. <laughs> the first, time
1: <laughs> <laughs> first 10,000 times 10,000 times.
2: But George, you go back to your other question. He he says, he talks in here about how he, a lot of what he has to say, you won't Understand if you haven't already attained some level of awakening. Right. And so that suggests to me that it can be recognizing other awakened people. That may also be a
4: function of your own state of uh,
1: How far along you are.
4: I can, I can definitely identify or can feel the spirit of people who are on a spiritual path. Mm-hmm. I, I, and to me, that's some form of enlightenment you know, some kind of a weakness. Um, and then I can also tell when someone's greedy and all about the money and, you know, I can feel it. You know, you can just interact with them and see it.
1: Right. So, you can listen to somebody's narrative and they will tell you where they are with religious belief. Can you listen to somebody's narrative and understand where they are in terms of their sense of, of belief in self? continuous, ongoing, intrinsic self and experience, or somebody who doesn't have that experience or has a different insight into that experience. Where is your own uh, investigation of this? Do you find that your experience is one of a continuous sense of self? Do you believe, for instance, that the sense of self you're experiencing now is the same one that you experienced when you were four? Or has that changed, based on the oh, conditions? What? <laughs> Good. So that's this insight into the the temporary or impermanent nature of self-experience, rather than an ongoing sense of self. Do you notice that your self-experience is dependent on conditions? That when you're on your own, you have one sense of self. When you're in, in a one on one relationship, you may have a different sense of self. When you're on a one on one relationship with different people, do you notice that you have a different expression of self? When you're in a small group, do you notice that you have an expression of self? In two different small groups, you could have different expressions of self. That in a, in a large group level, you have a different expression of self. This would be this insight into. Self and no self.
2: So, what kind of question would you ask your friend or acquaintance to determine if they were having selfing experiences or not?
1: Um, are you the same person that you were when you were four? <laughs> what, how do you? It depends really on the self that arises and the conditions with that particular person, what the nature of the dialogue is, isn't it? Um, do you notice how they are? Do you notice how they manifest? that Their self-experience based on who they're talking to, or what group they're with, or all of those things. It's a way of watching, to see. Do you know what you're looking for? Um, in, a, in an untrained mind, really, we just adjust to the differences. Maybe we think that there's an ex, a spectrum of expression in the person, but we, we identify them over and over again as the same person, rather than noticing that each of these selfing experiences come and go, and are discrete. they end. Uh, we don't have the expectation that they be the same, We are in the present moment watching what the manifestation of their expression of self is in the moment, and we don't obligate them to the previous expressions or future. We don't count on the future arising of self to be a certain way. Rather, we're present in the moment to see how it arises. People do carry forward their conditioning, though. So, that their responses tend to be in, in often a predictable order. If that makes sense. And then the, uh
2: huh. a quick question about morality in the context of this book. Is he
3: referring to it in an absolute sense or in like sense of morality being a human construct? Is he saying that there's absolute morality and the purification of that or acknowledging?
1: Uh, I think that what he's saying is that these are the moralities that you need to purify and then he defines them so the lists for instance in this section of the book he's talking about um, morality by means of abandonment by means of abstinence by means of mental volition by means of restraint by means of non transgression Um, so morality, by means of abandonment, means that um, knowledge that discerns mental and physical phenomena aband abandons the delusion of person or being. So this idea of self versus no self, we abandon the idea that somebody is permanently one self experience. Uh, by means of abstinence, the commentary and sub commentaries unanimously state that the mind that arises during insight meditation does not include the mental factor of abstinence from evil. On the other hand, the mind that arises during insight meditation is directly opposed to evil behavior and wrong livelihood. It brings about abstinence or morality by temporarily removing evil behavior and wrong uh, livelihood. So while you're engaged in the activity of meditation, you cannot be engaged in the activity of wrong livelihood and that's the purifying factor of that, by abstinence from engaging in uh, evil which is predicated on the belief that every action is good or evil which is one of those fundamental moralities that if you don't accept then you cannot be enlightened because it's the basis of it Oh, so gotcha. morality so, isn't relative well in grade, in grade. No, uh there is no room. <laughs> yes.
4: But yes, that's just in the context. Yes,
1: there is no room. Um, the morality is highly defined mm-hmm. it in the Buddhist context of Theravada Buddhism, and these are the, the moralities, and you have them or you don't have them. That's what he's saying. He's also saying that there's a metaphysical force that uh, will prevent enlightenment in this lifetime if you're not morally uh, pure. He's also saying that householders do not need to be pure before enlightenment, whereas monastics do. So you have this very elaborate millennium old construction of what Buddhist thought is and these are the conditions of that. Um, The reason that I find this interesting coming from the place that I come from which is pretty atheistic, even beyond secular Buddhism I don't uh, necessarily think that there is a metaphysical force that, that will tie you to all of these constructs. But I do also have a sense about them that it's very relieving of certain kinds of anxiety that would prevent the mind from calming enough to be able to go into the deep meditative state that would be required in order for you to have these insights. That if you wanted to adopt this view, that it would be very relieving and much in the same way that if you're a good person, you go to heaven at the end. But in, in Buddhism, the belief that you go to heaven at the end means that you can't be enlightened, because it's a violation of the, the morality, Buddhist morality. That would mean that you don't believe in reincarnation, which is one of the, the, the bedrocks of Buddhist belief. That you have to accept reincarnation as an actual fact in order to be liberated, is uh, the basis of Buddhist religion but whether that's in fact true or not is something else from my perspective of uh, doing this kind of practice. You had your hand up.
3: Is there a word for the, the metaphysical force that will prevent you if you haven't done the
1: um, proper work? That's a good question. You mean like God? <laughs> <laughs> or something,
2: something else. One for lay people and one for must. Like, right. It's two metaphysical forces. So, I I, I would believe
1: that the word is, well, I haven't found it yet. Um, They call them spiritual obstacles. So, the spiritual obstacles are the karmic obstacle, which refers to five fatal types of misconduct, that being killing your mother, killing your father, killing an arahat, injuring the Buddha, disrupting the unity of the monastic community. Uh, Wrong views, uh, these spiritual obstacles. The defilement obstacle refers to three types of wrong view. The wrong view that there is no good or evil. The idea that actions do not become good or evil and do not lead to good or evil results. This is karma, right? The wrong view that everything is cut off or comes to an end when a being dies, so this would be the idea that there is no reincarnation. The idea that no further existence will occur after death and there is no good or evil results that come from good or evil actions that lead to different uh, rebirths in different realms, lower or higher than your current rebirth. Um, The idea that, uh, and wrong view that volitional action does not produce good or evil results, the idea that happening Happiness and suffering arise by themselves without causes. So that uh, in each action that you take, it becomes good or evil, and each action that you take, depending on the good or evil nature of that, becomes a good or evil next possibility.
3: Uh Is the text saying that every action is either good or evil, that there's there's no neutral? Correct. That would seem to run counter to, like, I don't know, just how, how I look at this whole thing. I mean.
1: So this is the interesting nature of the development of American Buddhism, where these ideas are adjusted to accommodate existing views in our culture so that it, in some sense, is easier to be with it. Um, what I like about talking about these very traditional Theravada views is we can begin to see in the discussion the contrast of how we've uh, adapted them so that they are palatable to our own innate sense of morality.
3: Right. I guess my first question would be good or evil for who? Um, right? I mean every action can be so, but good that for it, some, evil for others or you know? So
1: there's a relativeness to that View of good and evil rather than an absolute quality of good or evil.
3: Okay, Yours? so I guess I just yeah. have to accept the idea that I'm wrong, view and move on. From well, that, that was
0: that was essentially what I was asking too, because I mean, if you kill someone you when know, as they're about to kill your child, that's different than you know if you're just going down the street and kill someone. Um, what they're talking about and I'm sorry but it is the there are different kinds of, of karma and those five things uh, are really serious uh, I mean you know not not too good to kill your brother either but that would not fit into those things however there would be a heavy karmic death right
1: so sorry. these are obstacles that would prevent enlightenment in this lifetime those obstacles these are deal killers
2: hmm? they're deal killers yeah Deal breakers. <laughs>
1: you're, you're not happy with this.
3: Um, no, I'm just, I guess I'm, this is the first time I'm hearing it, so okay. I'm a little surprised.
1: So, and mm-hmm. part of that is because of the relative nature of the instruction uh, that we get. in In the West, Buddhism is largely based on the practice of meditation, not on the the uh, cultural Buddhism that comes from Asia, When we're very adaptive in America. We tend to split everything off and make it mainstream culture. That's mm-hmm. part of our phenomena mm-hmm. here. Everything gets stripped of its details and jammed into mainstream mm-hmm.
0: culture.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Rap music. Uh, what else can you think of that 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 happens? With? Hmm? Uh-huh. Is that,
3: I'm, maybe for myself? Like perhaps that's why the importance of. Mindfulnesses, is so that you can in meditation you can review your actions and decide you know, think about whether it was good or evil
1: well um, it's even more basic for me I don't believe in forces of good or evil that doesn't make sense to me
0: yeah, uh, if I can let me present this and then you can tell me where I'm wrong or right my mind is bouncing off like a lot of other people's every time I hear good and evil because you where did that come in Buddhism? You know, I didn't know that was going to be here. And the only other time I've heard it used was uh, by uh, Naya Panikatera, the part of, of Buddhist meditation. But the way I think of it, so I can make that word evil palatable, is when they're referring to the, to the eight steps, to the eightfold eight path. Let's take mindfulness. They, they can call it right, right mindfulness or wise mindfulness. Or, and there are other words and if you're not doing those then it would be the opposite I'm hoping that that um, uh, Mahasim Sayadaw is, is maybe using it more like that uh, like like evil uh, uh, leads to the same thing as unwise. it means the same thing as unwise it leads to suffering it, or, or that isn't what it means what do you
1: think? I would say no or crap because
0: he's got so much good stuff but damn hmm.
1: so maybe you're not a buddhist (laughs) how's that landing
0: are you a buddhist
1: I'm not a good buddhist
0: (laughs) (laughs) but you're not an evil
1: buddhist (laughs) I am not Technically, a Buddhist because I don't accept either of these tenets uh, of reincarnation or karma. I. So. Um, but, but I don't need to be a Buddhist in order to, to practice and feel a benefit from my practice. And that,
4: that's the statement. I, I'm not, I don't consider myself a Buddhist, I consider myself a meditator. Right. And it just happens to be done in a Buddhist society I'm not Buddhist I'm right. practicing meditation but I don't consider myself a Buddhist what I'm listening to some of the concepts and I like some of the concepts and I incorporate them in my life because it works for me but I'm not a practicing Buddhist right.
1: I am open to the idea of e- exploring belief and seeing whether belief is required or not but I haven't found it to be um I find it, it's an interesting discussion. I like feeling uh, moral as a person and I like the way that uh, I, I engage the world from a perspective of morality. Um, I like ethical people. I trust ethical people and I I'm I seem to not be able to trust unethical people. I like people who are reliable and consistent and tell me the truth as, as well as they can know it in the moment. And I don't um, um really associate very closely to people who won't do that um, so I think that that's useful I I the main problem I have with mindfulness is that it severs all relationship to 2600 years of meditation exploration that if something appeals and and, and it's described in a completely secular way there's no way for me to then investigate it so that I like the descriptions in a traditional sense because they include the linkages you know, Buddhism is one list after another, embedded, embedded, embedded if you take all of those links away how do you actually pursue something that resonates for you that's what what I like about it but in terms of the the absolute nature of belief I don't know Um, but I'm also not opposed to exploring that um, I, I will tell you um, that I was talking to this uh, nun in Burma because of the prescription against doing metta for somebody who's not alive. So you're only supposed to send or radiate metta to someone who's alive because there needs to be a target for the metta to land on. And so I asked, uh, in order to get into metta jhana, there, the practice you do needs to be done for someone who's alive. Um, And I asked her whether she'd ever investigated that, and she said that she's never felt a need to do it, but that she had a realization around that, uh, in that uh, she would do metta every night for the the woman who brought her into uh, the lineage of nuns that she's in, and that she would easily go into jhana, and then uh, one night she found that she couldn't go into jhana easily, and then that persisted for the second night. And the third night, and this was a very unusual experience for her not to simply drop into jhana. And then on the fourth day, she got a letter saying Mm. that the woman that she had been practicing for had died. Wow. (laughs) And that she suddenly had the sense that this wasn't actually verified through direct experience
0: belief. Well, that kind of proves it?
1: Yes, certainly. For her. For her. <laughs> um, which did, didn't stop us from starting a punk band called uh, Mettajana for Dead People. That
2: but. <laughs> <laughs> but, great. <laughs> oh, seriously? I love
0: that name.
1: <laughs> but I also haven't actually sat on the cushion and attempted to get into Mettajana with an object of, of a... Of a dead person because it never occurs to me to do that when I sit down to practice. So.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, on the subject of reincarnation because I think that's maybe a little easier to talk about um, to me it's like it doesn't really matter I can believe in it or not believe in it but it's totally unverifiable right. you know I mean it's like heaven Like nobody's ever you know, been there and come back you know right. I can say that I don't believe in it but You know, my point of view is no more or less valid than anyone else's. So it just is not um, like really interesting or useful. Well, in
1: a a Tibetan tradition, of course, they do think that it's verifiable, and they have a ritual around which that they verify it. But from our sort of, uh, the seyadaw would say things to me like in, in Burma. You have a sharp Western mind.
2: Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm a Western He was not.
0: You know, or, or I
3: could try to come up with some sort of like, you know, mm-hmm. definition of reincarnation. It's like, oh, well, there's DNA. Is that reincarnation? Right. You know, and just trying to sort of look at it through that lens. But it's, it's still, it's like,
1: and then depending on um, the tradition, what is reincarnated, right? Or is it simply a matter that the, the nature of your karma created the conditions out of the next um, birth? And then that birth is then part of the conditions? I don't have much feeling for that. That's how I kind of go with it. But you know, I have... Uh, one of my closest friends will turn to me and say, that's evidence that there's a God, at the same time I'm saying to him, that's evidence that there's no (laughs) God. It's the same evidence. evidence. Uh,
2: (laughs) George, (laughs) can I ask more question? This is really basic, but just as as we're going to go at this for a long time. Could you um, describe in the Fundamental Difference. He talks about insight meditation and talks about concentration meditation. He talks about concentration insight. What's the basic sort of difference between concentration meditation and insight meditation as he's referring to it?
1: Well, I would say that the concentration is oriented around jhana, those deep concentrated states, and that the insight is meditation is around the Dhammas, the fourth foundation. But it's
2: a technique. So matter when you say I'm practicing insight meditation, right. not concentration meditation, right. what concentration. am I doing that's different? I'm
0: sorry.
1: Well, you're investigating in one the Dhammas and in the the concentration meditation you're focused in a uh, either in a karnaka samadhi, momentary, or in a epigata, one pointed
2: Okay, I got the concentration. <clears throat> what am I doing to investigate the Dharma in, in, in the in inside? Side? Well what am, I, what am I actually doing when I'm sitting eradicate that's invest- how do I investigate the Dharma to engage in inside meditation?
1: Well, you could investigate let's do an insight practice tonight, say see here feel. So oh. you're exploring the first foundation in that the nature of sensing, the nature of the fixating uh, fixation of the sensing experience. You could then be uh, also investigating the third foundation in that, the mind state. Which mind state is present between the sensing experience and the fixation of it? You could be investigating the characteristic of impermanence, the arising and passing, paying attention to the arising and passing of an event, Uh, any sensing event, and exploring that through the lens of impermanence. You could do it through um, the lens of dukkha. What is the nature of suffering or pain, I think is the word that Mahasi uses mostly. What is the nature of pain in, in, in any sensing experience? Or you could do an investigation of whether the self is present or not present. If you look at the Satipatthana Sutta, it describes meditation as the four qualities of mind into the beginning of it, but it also, in the refrain, describes over and over again how to investigate those particular objects. So one is the mindfulness of inside, mindfulness of outside, mindfulness of inside and outside, then one is the mindfulness of arising, one is the mindfulness of passing, arising and passing, and then whether or not you're in equanimity with the experience or whether uh, those uh, qualities of craving version and consciousness are present. So any of those would be insight oriented.
2: Like, you know, the, the things I um, noting, labeling, sensory activity, that kind of thing, body scanning, for example, that, those all are pretty clear. Uh, in fact, he even says that if you're doing mindfulness of breathing, as soon as you move from the mere presence of the breath in or out, to the quality—is it, it warm or not warm? Moist—is right. it any of those features? You've, you've already shifted the insight, right? Because you're you're now actually investigating the sensory uh, elements of breathing, not merely the fact of breathing. Trigger stuff at least more contemplative kinds of. You investigate the nature of uh, suffering. What, 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 I'm repeating the five daily recollections over and over again. I'm going to—is there a dry practice? Is it,
1: what, well, what do, you, what do you do? Let's look at dukkha, The three levels of dukkha. The first level is old age, sickness, and death. Uh, the second is uh, getting what you want and losing it, not getting what you want having to put up with things that you don't want. The third level is the subtle, ongoing, pervasive irritation that nothing is actually the way that you would have it if you were actually in charge of anything. So then in the experience of discomfort of pain that arises while you're practicing, you could analyze which of those three aspects of dukkha is the experience of the displeasure or pain.
0: That's
2: insight
1: practice. That's insight practice. That's what you were asking right? yeah. no,
2: that's what it was. So There's
1: then you would be going: Is it practice. one, two, or three? Or one and two? Or two? Okay, two and good. three? Or good. all three? Or that's helpful. Give me another example besides
2: pain,
1: besides physical pain. Okay. So noticing mm-hmm. the arising, noticing the middle, noticing the passing of, what? of any sensory experience, so that you you. Uh, notice whether or not it's permanent or not. So it eradicates the belief in permanent experience. You could do that with the experience of self arising or passing. Uh. I remember when,
2: hmm? when I, my first class I took from you, you, you were teaching a tech, this was a advanced course you
1: The Dharma maps?
2: Yeah. Calvin and I came to that you, that you were doing some sort of shinsen stuff
1: like I'm still doing, doing that
2: a thing with Gone
1: oh not note Gone just no, Gone
2: yeah and
1: uh, if you're on the call that's what we've been doing <coughs> for the last well
2: what was remarkable about couple of months, was months I think if you get if you get really uh, for some reason during that set of classes I, I was very I find easy to get very concentrated right and um, <laughs> it's a total coincidence, I think. But uh, when we were doing that exercise, one, one of the times we were doing it, there was a, there was a stretch where I, it, we did it with external sounds and outside the building. And at the moment of gone, I had this sort of insight that at the moment of gone, uh, self had to jump to the next thing. Uh-huh. Right? It sort of sense the jumping. But there was also, that's where the suffering was, right there. Right the relief himself had to release that one sensory input and jump to the next one, the monkey letting go of the lion and grabbing the next one. Right. The moment of release was where the suffering comes from because that's a little death of self mm-hmm. over and over and over again. Yeah, so that would be the effect. Right. Yeah. Good. Thank
1: you. Uh huh. Alright. Let's see here. Let's do some practice. What do you think? Um, I like to do this metta vipassana. So what I was thinking of doing was um, beginning with a metta as a concentration practice and then going into some insight practice, working around uh, exploration of the first foundation, which is the exploration of the sensing experience. So that technique is a see here feel technique, a basic um, insight practice, simply trying to discern whether or not the sensing experience falls into those three categories. So I record these calls and I put them into a dropbox so that you can keep up if you don't come to all of the classes, if you'd like to be invited to the Dropbox and I need your name and email, anybody interested? And then just pass it along. So how did that go? Pretty easy? Did you notice the the body-mind settling into it once you got going? More concentrated?
4: I um I'm I'm involved in the practices. I I, I noticed that I can do meta and then I can switch over to insightfulness with the hearing and feeling. I don't get that um, the seeing, that might mm-hmm. affect the hearing and the feeling. And I know that when I started coming here about a year ago, I couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't have two forms of meditation. Right. You know? Nice. So it's, it's, it's nice to see that I can do both. Great.
1: Wow. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, wow. practice, practice. Else? All right. This is deepening your practice, so I'm always going to be advocating ways to deepen your practice. Uh, for me, the next thing that's coming up is I'm teaching these two intensive classes starting in September. So the first one is starting September 11th. Um, I'm teaching... Uh, um, a class called The Meaningful Life, which is a relational mindfulness class. Uh, It's an intensive, so it happens over a period of nine months. There are two classes a month here on Sunday afternoons. There are two mentoring sessions a month with a meditation mentor. The purpose of those classes is to make sure that you're understanding the material and that you also understand the meditation techniques and that you have somebody supporting you uh, on an individual basis, uh, so that if the meditation heats up too much, you have somebody to to work with to help you manage it. Often with insight meditation, um, the the stuff that comes up when you do it can be hard to manage, and so it's useful to have that support. In addition to that, there's six mornings a week of guided meditation. I do a thing called morning meditation, which is a live conference call that you, you call into. And then there's a, a guide, a 25-minute meditation. Uh, the Meaningful Life is oriented around uh, relational mindfulness, so it looks at the way that your conditioning uh, has uh, caused you to develop strategies uh, that uh, really are defined as a working model of yourself and also as a working model of other people, so that uh, it looks at how you form relationships. It's based on John Bowlby's attachment theory. So you look at what your attachment strategy is, you look at the attachment strategies of other people and how that tends to inform how you uh, construct relationships. Um, part of the, the work of the class is to understand what attachment strategy you're using, and then also, if it's not a secure strategy, what ways you might use meditation to inform a shift toward more secure ways of being in the world and more secure ways of being in relationship I'm also offering a class called Meditation Interventions for the Addiction Process which is the same uh, foundation as the Meaningful Life but it has in addition to that uh, a uh, a look at how to maintain long term abstinence or harm reduction depending on whether it's a a substance substance addiction or a process uh, addiction So we look at, for instance, uh, how um, craving and urging, allowing the mind to think about using is causal to relapse. We look at stress, uh, anger, and depression. We look at uh, persistent negative emotions, which is the somaticized emotion that is held in the body based on uh, trauma or abuse that may have occurred in in childhood. And then also uh, looking at how Difficulty in interpersonal relationships uh, tends to lead toward relapse. In some sense, how I view addiction is that it's a decision that people have made not to rely on other people, but to find alternatives to relying other, on other people so that you can be in the world. Um, um, most addicts have made a decision somewhere along the line that people are so unreliable that it's better not to count on them to count on substances or processes that aren't as uh, disappointing as people are. There's a flyer up there. You can take a look. The registration is open on the ATS website and we're offering a a, a $650 scholarship to people that need some resource assistance. You can pay all at once or you can pay monthly on that. Um, I do highly recommend that if you want to really see how meditation can shift these persistent uh, difficulties in your life, that this would be a way of looking at that. The 8th uh, annual uh, uh, Against the Stream West Coast Retreat is happening in September at Joshua Tree. There's a flyer up there for that. That's a week-long retreat focused around the four foundations of mindfulness. Uh, Dave Smith, Mary Sand, Cavage, and Cheryl Sleen are leading that. Uh, This winter I'll be doing a retreat up at La Casa de Maria, the Meaningful Life uh, Winter uh, Retreat. The Meaningful Life Retreats are oriented a little bit differently than a a four-foundation retreat. Uh, I teach the first three foundations uh, of mindfulness, and then instead of teaching the Dhammas, the fourth foundation, we look at, uh, again, the attachment strategies and how to work with them meditatively. The other difference between my retreats and uh, the Meaningful Life retreats, that is, and the, the ATS um, Four Foundation retreats, is that uh, my approach is a metta-vipassana approach, so that the beginning of the retreat is all metta-practice, and then after we've developed concentration through the practice of metta, we move into vipassana practice. I find that it's a really useful way to practice the metta brings you into a calm, kind place with yourself and with others. And then when you move into the vipassana, a lot of the difficulty that come up in a traditional vipassana way of practicing are actually softened by having the foundation of metta. Um, I think that there's some flyers up there for other events that are coming up. Take a look at those. We have a lot of teachers... a variety of teachers that come through. It's important to be able to find somebody that you can work with as a teacher who resonates with you uh, that you don't have to do a lot of transliteration, you don't have to translate the way that they describe the world and practice. It's something that just resonates with you. The classes here are offered on a dana basis. The suggested dana here is fifteen dollars. We've kind of crunched the numbers and that's a good amount to keep the lights on and the doors open. I know that We've been here for eight years and that it's easy to take uh, us for granted, that is to say the Meditation Center for granted. But uh, I, I do want you to understand that Meditation Center's finances are always precarious and without the ongoing support of the people that come here, we won't actually be able to keep the lights on and the doors open. But we do the the dana practice or the generosity practice as a practice for ourselves. We want it to be a meaningful practice to ourselves. So if you're resourced at a level that $15 really isn't meaningful to you, then you really need to be practicing at a level that is meaningful to you. If $15 is a meaningful amount, that's terrific. Mm-hmm. Use that. And if it's actually too much, also understand that, that we as a community are... are making this place available to everybody to come, whether they're resourced or not. We take cash and credit cards. Uh, If you would also be so kind as to put the chairs back and the cushions away, that's also uh, appreciated, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.